Lately, I have felt the urge to wax philosophically a little. Last week on my sermon about love, and this week about truth. And it was, or has been initiated by my own struggle with what is truth in the world these days, and with the awareness that we're living more and more in what has been described as a post-truth world. I was egged on by this sermon, in fact, by a recent article I read by Michael Hayden, who is past head of the CIA and the National Security Agency, and the title of it, The End of Intelligence, dot, 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 in which he was making the case in our post-truth world that rational, reasonable intelligence no longer seems to have any truth about it as it's being understood by many people in the world and in government. And he thought out loud in his his opinion what that means. Let me say that in this postmodern before post-truth world, uh, we've come to see that the enlightenment understanding of objectivity may not be all that it was meant to be and that we all perceive the truth in different ways, that there's always a perspective through which we view the truth, the subjectivity of it, yet we've never before that I know in history gotten to a place where all truth and even the facts of truth are being questioned. So with that, I was brought to this text in John's Gospel where Jesus is brought before the trial of the religious authorities right before his death and ultimately brought before Pontius Pilate, the governor, the decider of what is true and what is not. It comes to us in the 18th chapter, verses 33 through 38. May God's Spirit open up to us the truth of this text. Pilate was moving in and out because the religious authorities wanted Jesus Crucified, and Pilate knew he was not guilty, but he also knew that the religious authorities needed a scapegoat, and if they didn't get it, there would be chaos to pay. And so, in our text, Pilate enters the headquarters again after having talked to the religious authorities and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. That was heresy. You say that I am a king, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? This is the word of the Lord. 
Barbara Brown Taylor tells of a woman's retreat she attended when the retreat leader asked those there to name a person in their life that they could remember who had been most Christ-like to them. When it came time to share their answers, one woman stood up and said, it was a very hard thing for me to do, this naming a person, because I kept thinking, who in my life told me the truth about myself so clearly that all I wanted to do was kill Which is exactly why Jesus was John's morning. My microphone fading in and out. I may have to use this one. Well, let's, let's see if it works. According to this morning's uh, passage, Jesus died because that's exactly what he did. He told the truth everywhere he went. He told the truth to the religious authorities and how they had turned God into a deal maker. And he told the truth to the political authorities and how they had acted unjustly and brutally and that Caesar was indeed an idol, and that he told them that it didn't matter in the end because their acts were not deal-breakers. He told the truth to those in power and proclaimed that the first will be last and the last will be first. And in his Beatitudes, he told the truth when he said, Blessed are the weak, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the poor, for where you see them, you see me in the kingdom of God. Jesus told the truth everywhere he went to everyone and every time. And he said of himself, I have come to bear witness to the truth, and that he was the light and the truth. And inasmuch as he was the word of God made flesh, the truth of God made flesh, We confess that truth, that he was the most credible, the man with the most integrity and authenticity, and therefore we had to get rid of him. When you tell the truth to power, like Jesus did, you will be silenced, like Solzhenitsyn or Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or Gandhi or Oscar Romero Truth-tellers do not last long in our world, for who really wants to know the truth about how things work underneath things or the truth about ourselves and how we work underneath things? Pilate's question, what is truth, was asked in the midst of this religious and political cauldron boiling up on them as they stood to face this moment of decision. What is truth and who is truth? The word truth, by the way, is in Greek aletheia, which really means to be unconcealed, to be uncovered. Pilate wants to know whether he's mocking Jesus, what is truth, or whether he deeply down in the heart of hearts and in that place in himself where he struggles with that issue too deep in the morning he wants to know what is truth this question rings 
today as loudly as ever. When we have politicians, Republicans, and Democrats, and independents who spin whatever truth there is for their own political success, what is truth when all news is now fake news except for MSNBC and Fox News? What is truth in a world with alternative facts? What is truth now that we have moved into this post-truth environment, which, by the way, was voted the word of the year by the Oxford Dictionary in 2006? The word of the year is post-truth, beating out adulting, which means growing up, alt-right, and chat box. Know what chat box is? That's the IT, the thing that takes over your social programs and begins to chat with tweets and all sorts of stuff in order to espouse their understanding of truth. So Pilate's question is our question, and it confronts the fundamental heart of our political, philosophical, and theological reality in this time, as it did in Jesus. Interestingly, Mark only uses the word truth once, excuse me, twice, Matthew once, and Luke three times, but John, in his gospel, uses it 21 times, which is indicative of the conversation that John and his church is having with the Greek philosophical tradition of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, who spends miles and miles and miles of language and writing to the issue of what is truth. It's a philosophical understanding for them. And John wants us to understand that truth is understood as this one in Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says in John. No one comes to the Father except by me. And does that mean that you have to confess Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior in order to be saved? I'm not saying yes or no to that, but I'm saying in this text we are misinterpreting it if that's what we think is the truth of it. For the truth of it is this text saying that his truth is that of compassion and forgiveness and inclusion. And his way is the way of authenticity and integrity and credibility. And his life is a life of sacrifice and suffering and love. I am the way and the truth and the life. It is this way in my life and truth and way that you see the truth. Which by be why John gives witness to this with Jesus standing before Pilate after that question, what is truth not saying a word? Just standing there as truth always does. It does stand there undefended, confronting the deceits and denials without explanation, forcing us to make a choice whether we are going to come clean and accept the truth or deny it and bury it. It may take a Stormy Daniels or a Monica Lewinsky or the Pentagon Papers. It may come from our wives or our children or our friends or even from the dark part of our souls where our conscience 
sickness lurks. It may come in the middle of the night as the alcohol effect has worn off and we cannot sleep. It may confront us always with this question when we are sober and attentive and aware, will I embrace the truth or hide from it? And the truth is, in almost every case, we choose to hide from it. Unless, by God's awful, terrible grace, we can no longer hide anymore. It is a family that cannot face the elephant in the room about the mother's addiction. It is the father who cannot face the truth that he hates his job and is losing his soul day by day in it. It is a young woman who cannot confront anything, who is so afraid of conflict that she breaks out in hives. It is a politician who is so narcissistic, he is convinced that everyone but himself is wrong. It is a sad person convinced that they are always the victim of something and everyone else are persecuting her. It is the person who thinks going to college gives them to the right for a safe place where their political, social, and cultural views will not be called into question. I can promise you, if you came here seeking a safe place, you have come to the wrong place. This place is a sanctuary, but there is nothing safe about it. Neither is there anything safe about the truth when it confronts us. It calls all our understandings of truth into question and all of our perspectives to be re-examined. It is an evangelical Christian who thinks that their interpretation of scripture is inerrant, their interpretation. It is anyone who claims to know too much. It is us. Remember the story of Adam and Eve. God gave, I mean, it was great. God gave them everything they needed. They're in the garden. They're getting along. They're doing fine. Everything's hunky-dory. And then the deceiver came, the serpent, the liar, Lucifer. And he slithers up to them and he says, did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And they said, no, God said we can eat of every tree in the garden except that one, the knowledge of good and evil, the, the one that gives us full and complete knowledge. And the snake, the deceiver, the liar says, it doesn't matter. You're not going to die if you eat it. God, God doesn't care. And so they do. They eat it thinking now they will have certainty and absolute knowledge, of course. And what they have instead is their own knowledge of their shame and their guilt. And they see themselves naked for the first time. And they go into the cover up behind the tree so they won't be seen by God who walks in the garden and God calls them by name and in their shame and hiding because they've seen the truth about themselves for the first time. God calls them out and dresses them to give them some modicum of cover-up from their shame. This is a story about us when we finally have to own up to the truth about ourselves and it is about Lucifer, the great deceiver, the one who lies and lies and lies and wants us to live into that lie. And it is a story about lying and deceit. And if we pay attention to our lives and where we lie and deceive and cover up, we will see ourselves just like Adam and Eve. That's the purpose of that story. 
Since I am preaching on the subject of truth, I feel compelled to come clean and confess the truth that I have lied. Well, this is not the only confession I will make, but it's the only one you're getting today. A couple of weeks ago, I, uh, there's no way for me to tell this story without sounding extremely defensive, so just with that, I'm making the case. I uh, had not uh, had a day off in several weeks, and I was not going to get my usual day off on Friday, which is when I play golf. So I snuck out of the office on Wednesday afternoon and played 18 holes of golf in three and a half hours. And when I was in the locker room, I happened to stumble on one of our members who had just played golf himself. And I really didn't want him to know that I was out in in the afternoon. I think I started about 3 o'clock out playing golf, uh, playing hooky. Uh, Yet I was busted. And he says to me, oh, uh, so you've been playing golf? I said, yeah, I played nine holes. (laughs) Remember, I'd already said to you I'd played 18, but I didn't want him to know I'd played 18 because that meant I had been been out there for three and a half hours and he would just do the addition. And, And he goes, oh, yeah, we played nine too. I played with his wife. And I got to say that some of my defensiveness is that whenever I would do that and I couldn't play on Friday, I would try to get out one afternoon and play golf. But there used to be a member here who would see me there and then tell everybody he ran into that all Steve ever does is play golf. So I was a little paranoid about it to begin with. But I lied. Why? To save face? To not be judged or accused? Aren't I adult enough to stand up on the truth? Why did I need to deceive him? And when I go there, then I start looking at the deeper deceit that I am living with. Not that I played 18 and lied about it, but that somehow I had the need to lie about it. That's the deeper deception. Now, as I said... That's the last one you're going to get for a while, so just take it for what it is. I've discovered that when I try to always tell the truth, especially the truth about myself, and I discover that if I do, I fear that I will evaporate and wilt and die or merely be disgusted. And I understand the risk involved in being willing to see what I have built my life on sometimes, the sinking sands of deceit and falsehood. And it might even force me to see my life as something of a pretense. Did you see the announcement recently about the Swedish uh, reality that the Swedish meatball is actually a Turkish meatball that was brought over by King George Twelfth, I think, in the 17th century, and the two million meatballs a day that Ikea sells, calling them Swedish, are actually Turkish, which led one counselor of tourism to say, oh my God, that means with that lie, my whole life now has been built on lies. Going to that all-or-nothingness, it happens all over the place. I can think of countless people who have felt that after discovering some fact about their family that has been concealed, they feel like their whole life has been built on a lie. Say maybe they were adopted and no one told them, or that person who they loved who died actually took their own life, but 
you never knew that until you got to be 40. When such things are discovered, they feel like everything is a sinking sand and everything you built your life on is a, is a fake. But that's not true. Only that is a fake. There is much there that is real. It happens globally, too, in nation-states when the population gives in to the big lie of some leader who can save them from hardship and suffering. That's the big lie. In Germany and Italy and Russia and Spain and Japan 70 years ago, we think it can't happen again. Don't deny the facts. These leaders understood how to use words to manipulate the world into getting what they wanted. And they understood how politics works. They understood spin. They learned it from unscrupulous marketers, salesmen, advertisers, pickup artists, slogan-possessed utopians, and psychopaths. Not my line. I wish it were. It is scheming and insincere in propaganda. It is to live a life of pretense, keeping our true selves concealed from others in order to get elected, to win friends and influence people simply for power's sake. When I look back on my life, I can think of a thousand times when I did it, when I conformed rather than speak up. In eighth grade, there was a young new member who came to school who had a disability, and some of the friends I hung around with began to bully him. And I stood there, uncomfortable with it, but I didn't say a word, which is in itself, I think, the worst kind of deceit, the sins of omission. It's built on laziness. The word for it is sloth in the Bible. It is about our unwillingness to work hard to get to the deeper truth about who we are and whose we are. And it is fueled by fear and what dictators and bullies depend on that the majority of the people will refuse to face the obvious truth, either because we wish it were so true that we don't want to know otherwise or because we just don't want to deal with conflict. We choose to contain ourselves and to live in that innocence and naivete. And that's how Hitler took Germany. We're surrounded by lies. The immigration lie, the Muslim lie, the racial lie, the equality lie, the communism lie, the capitalism lie, the righteousness lie, the birther lie. They all add up to the big lie that convicts us all which is the lie that we think we know enough to play God. And we don't. I've heard people say, I know all I need to know about this subject. Here's the truth. I've learned all there is to learn about it. Here's what's right. I've heard people say, I don't need to know any more. I've already made up my mind. Oh yeah? We don't need to know any more as if we have encapsulated all the knowledge in the world into our own heads. Think of the person who insists that everything is right in their life. She always smiles, avoids conflicts, does, do, does what she's asked to, thinks Jesus will fix everything. She's found her little niche and hides in it, does not question authority, does not complain when mistreated, strives to be invisible, and just go along like a fish swimming in a giant school, but deep down she's miserable. 
A secret gnaws at her heart. She's still suffering because life is suffering. Not all, not all of life is suffering, but life is suffering, and the only way we grow up is to face that suffering and let that suffering some way be the truth of who we are and our character formation. It is the great truth of every great religion. Life is suffering. So she lives in her fragile little shell of religious safety and prosperity gospel until the truth comes and bam, like Thor's hammer, smashes it all to pieces and then what? What? She's built her whole life on a lie? No. The spirit of truth and life then enters into her life if she's willing through the cracks of that brokenness and begins to reform for her what is really true, that God loves us unconditionally, whether we lie or not, which is a good thing because we all lie. God loves us unconditionally. Just as those disciples learned at the foot of the cross after they had lied and deceived everybody and themselves that they didn't know the man, Jesus. They didn't know who he was and abandoned him. Nothing convicts us like love. Truth is love in this story. And nothing convicts us like love It will break us and it will open us up and it will transform us and enable us to see what is true about ourselves and God and anyone else around us. And we will know the truth and it will set us free. Well, yeah, mostly. 